Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, November 12th, 2020. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Uh, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So uh, we are back to uh, COVID being the dominating so- story of the moment uh, with the elections results actually starting to recede into the rearview mirror a bit. Um, I note that uh, Hugh Hewitt this morning, uh, my old friend and uh, a loyal uh, meliorist uh, in all ways about Trumpism and Trump and the Trump administration and the Trump White House and the prospects of the Republican Party has thrown in the towel on Twitter this morning and said that uh, Biden has won the election and that there's no way for Trump to catch up. Uh, Decision Desk has called Arizona for Biden, not surprisingly. And so if Hugh is saying it, that is a leading indicator that the that the uh, the tidal wave is about to crash over the the delusional idea that Trump can somehow overturn the results of the election. And this is all happening at a time when, from everything we can see, uh, the second wave is genuinely upon us in, in, in COVID. We're talking about uh, hundreds of thousands of cases uh, a day. Um, and while it appears that the mortality rate is nowhere near what it was in the spring, nonetheless, simple <clears throat> math would indicate that if we're seeing some kind of exponential spread, obviously, at some point the deaths are going to start um, growing, maybe not exponentially, but at least arithmetically. Uh, and that, of course, has real-world consequences. A, what what's going on here in New York? I'm not mentioning New York again. People say we're always we're New York-centric, and I'm only mentioning New York because we, of course, have an activist government in relation to COVID that could be viewed as a kind of leading edge. So <clears throat> in New York, we were, for the longest time, we were having about, uh, I mean, I mean, since like, you know, let's say June or so, we were running anywhere between 400 and 800 new cases daily. Um, and um, the percentage um, of those tests, of daily tests, it was it was uh, uh, below one percent. We're we're coming in positive pretty routinely, um, and now those numbers have um, gone up pretty dramatically because now we're at we're over three percent of three percent positive of those tested dailies, which which Cuomo had said would be a kind of um, benchmark um, for um, sort of uh, revisiting policies, and and in fact he has now revisited. Um, certain policies regarding restaurants and get-togethers going into effect on Friday, I think it is, going to effect tomorrow. Um, restaurants can no longer um, serve anyone indoors after 10 o'clock. Is that correct? I think so, yeah. And that um, <clears throat> gatherings of uh, personal gatherings in homes uh, must must be limited to 10 people. Right. So um, yeah. so we're in an interesting situation here, which is that obviously it is galling and rankling to have a, a political official in the United States 
ordering people not to have people in their their homes like this is as this is as dark and intrusive as government could seem to get right and on the other hand we also know and there are increasing studies that suggest this that this really is how it spreads it spreads indoors with large gatherings indoors where people are together for you know a period of time exceeding 30 minutes and uh, this uh, new study, which I think is in Nature, which used big data. We actually talked about this yesterday about polling and stuff, but used big data to try to co-locate uh, the, where people were uh, before the lockdowns uh, in big cities and where the outbreaks were in those cities. It's kind of a remarkable piece of detective work. And, you know, it's sort of like, small supermarkets in crowded inner cities where the supermarkets are of course don't have the kind of square footage that a that a suburban supermarket has and in general where people might even go to congregate because they live crammed into apartments and don't really want to stay in like this is where they go and socialize and do stuff like that and you have a relatively small number of venues or neighborhoods where these things explode outward from these what appear to be compressed people sort of shoved together indoors and so you can see how if you're a public official trying to slow down or break the spread of a of a terrible virus that thanksgiving for example could really be the sort of thing where you get 30 people together for a thanksgiving meal one or two of them are positive for the virus they spread it over this space of four or five hours and then everybody in the room goes home and goes to wherever they're gonna go and then you have this they you know they might be shedding virus having gotten it from somebody else so i'm in an interesting position because i see friends of mine, conservative, libertarianish friends of mine who are horrified at the idea that Andrew Cuomo could like wave his hand and say no more than 10 people together in a private dwelling. Um, and on the other hand, this kind of is how, you, if you want to stop the spread, I don't know what else you want anybody to do. This is where the spread is. Am I... Does anybody want to? Um, does anybody want to like bite back at me on this? Because because I'm just trying to like be realistic <laughs> here about what it is that's happening, and whether or not we're looking at another 250,000 dead. By- yeah, well, uh, the preservation of liberty is sometimes really inconvenient, um, but it is nevertheless the case that we should be appalled by the prospect of a state or local government to say nothing of a federal government, which is completely barred from such a thing limiting your capacity to associate on the grounds that it's beneficial for everyone. The notion here that this is where COVID is spreading in indoor, in indoor gatherings is true. Um, in fact, it betrays the theater of trying to close down restaurants that serve as covert bars after 10 o'clock, which is what they're trying to do in part because these institutions will have far more um, interest in and protocols around ventilation and disinfection that are absent in private residences. And people of public health experts have been talking about the threat posed by large indoor gatherings for some time. It's not not a threat, but enforcement 
of such a thing is profoundly disturbing. Um, how that would manifest. I mean, it's one thing for you to say, okay, we're going to target these Hasidic neighborhoods in Brooklyn as atrocious as that policy manifested itself. And it was abhorrent. But now we're talking about doing this on a statewide level where, you know, a state literally the size of England, where you're going to have to deputize your neighbors to inform on you and get police to stop doing police work in order to um, break up these sort of events. And this is a model that I suppose they're trying to apply. They'd like to apply elsewhere, but elsewhere is where it's needed, right? I mean, we talk very much about New York, but it's places in the upper Midwest now that are seeing hospitals uh, reach capacity. Some places in Iowa, they're at capacity, approaching over capacity in the Dakotas. Um, So, I mean, that's where the real threat is. They're being proactive in New York, and I understand that they want to, and that there's value to it. But it is not a frivolous concern to be trepidatious about the powers that the state government is assuming for itself, even if they're constitutional. And I think that that question remains somewhat subject to debate, um, though we, we did have a determination about whether or not state governments could limit, for example, religious services over the spring. Um, and it turns out by and large, they can't. So there's quite a few obstacles, I think, that the state government will have to overcome. And part of the problem that we've been encountering with this pandemic from day one is that we have a natural inclination in this country towards hostility, towards public authority figures, towards an overreaching government. It is ingrained in our DNA. It's part of the reason why we can't have an effective contact tracing program in this country, because people won't talk to contact tracers. They won't give up their neighbors. So if you're trying to create a nation of Pavlik Morozovs, you're going to have a lot of problems in the form of American individualism. Well, and can I just add to that? I, I, I'm definitely on Noah's side of this argument because the other problem here is the legitimacy of the uh, state actors who are now trying to implement these policies. Because for many, many months now, we have seen absolutely biased enforcement of the rules they're now telling us are direly in need of being adhered to. So here in D.C., for example, we had a we had a big uptick in cases of covid cases uh, announced yesterday. And guess why? Well, because we had thousands and thousands of people in the streets partying for a couple of days, you know, a week ago. It's an obvious thing. Nobody talked about it. The press certainly didn't cover it that way. And so there are a lot of cynical, uh, justifiably cynical people right now who, when they hear, oh, now we have to start, you know, tattling on our neighbor's Thanksgiving, think, you know, screw that. Because I, I mean, I've sat there and watched irresponsible behavior justified by public health officials in the name of, you know, social justice campaigns. I don't, and, and I think they should all be consistently applied. We have not seen a consistent application of these public health rules. And so I think it's going to be a really uphill battle for President-elect Biden and his administration to, to, to have a message that's going to resonate. So far, he said he knows he can't do a national mask mandate, for example, but he wants one and he wants to encourage that. And I think the first thing that needs to be rebuilt is trust in what the public health message is, because that has eroded and nobody wants to acknowledge that. Look, I think that's a very <clears throat> these are both very deep points and I'm not I'm not contesting them and obviously we have dwelled e- extensively from May onward on the appalling hypocrisy and double standard that says that people aren't allowed to pray but they can go, you know, have a riot uh, as long as the politics are right. Um it's terrible. I I'm I'm literally thinking more about 
what happens as we have this research and what do we know that the research tells us? It tells us a couple of things that we it seemed to be clear. One of which is that children don't get it, right? That's the miracle of this of this virus. Children don't get it, which of course implicates this question of what to do about schools, which has become such a huge thing. So children don't get it. Uh, we're still engaging <clears throat> in surface cleaning theater when it does not appear that surfaces transmit it. Planes don't transmit it because they have ex- extensive ventilation and the stuff doesn't get on surfaces as long as people wear masks. People should wear masks because it is spittle that transmits it. It is it is human, the effusion of hum- of of, <laughs> of moisture from the human body transmitting through the air that seems to transmit this thing which is why people should wear masks and why uh and why you can't have people cheek by jowl in small spaces so if you take all that information there are sort of two things that go with it one is uh you should wear a mask and the other is that you probably shouldn't go into a crowded indoor space and stay there for a long time. And you shouldn't be one because no matter how well you feel and all that, you're no con- control of this. So we can convey that message and people can sort of hear it and understand it. Uh, I guess it is the, it is the uh, insistence on it becoming a, an enforcement, a law enforcement issue that is where the rubber meets the road here. Because what you could say is, look, cops aren't going to be going around, going to your Thanksgiving, busting it up. right? The only real way that happens is when you have some lunatic neighbor who is Pavlik Morozov, who, by the way, is, that's a, the kid, a, Soviet, a kid in the Soviet Union who informed, tale, most likely. Anyway, informed on his parents, called the, called the, authorities on his parents and then was killed was lynched by by neighbors and he became a martyr this figure public morozov so you know crazy neighbor calls the cops on you and maybe they in one case that's going to happen the idea thing is that you 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 do it this way you announce you can't be in a, a, a to say we're taking this really seriously obviously it's you know tiny fraction of a percentage possibility that someone will ever come in and break up your Thanksgiving. But you know what? Don't have it. You can't have a big family gathering right now. There is a pandemic and a virus that is that is currently spreading in exponential fashion. And so we're trying to convey this message. It's horrible. You can't have Thanksgiving the way you used to. It's a terrible burden on everybody, and it's emotionally horrible. And then Christmas is coming, and that's also horrible. But it's also horrible to either get sick or to be the transmitter of illness to others. So um, if we take the, the rule, the emergency rules, as more symbolic than actual, how do we feel about that? Even Abe? worse, because I'm sorry, just one okay, more, sorry. one yeah, more tiny okay. rant, and then okay, I'll turn okay, it over okay, to a much okay. calmer Abe. I would feel a lot better about those symbolic gestures if they'd actually been applied 
earlier through months and months and months of people gathering and, and screaming, yelling in this in this ridiculous claim of, ma- oh, they're wearing masks is fine. No, it's not fine. So you, they should have symbolically said, don't do this. I would feel better if my city's leader had not just gone down to Delaware and partied with the Biden campaign and then given herself a, a Absolute, you know, right. dispensation not to quarantine. I would feel better, actually, about the symbolic I, gesture. I, but- I am. I am. I, there is, of course, no you know letter in a in a you know in a syllable in a word in a sentence that you spoke there that i disagree with okay call me ape i'm sorry no yeah. no but no but <laughs> the, the, i'm asking a different question which is like what do you do now that the now that there's an exponential spread you call for responsible behavior i mean that's really all you can all right. do you can't enforce it you can't enforce those rules so the the idea of taking the the rules um, symbolically, it's like um, treating the law um, seriously, but not literally. <laughs> well, I, that's not, but that's not a weird way to look at this. Um, none of these issues are particularly well settled. But we went over this in, in March and April during the state level bans on on um, individual gatherings, and playgrounds. You, had, you have playgrounds. You have to go into the the history of Supreme Court precedent, unlike McCullen, which was which dealt with. Um, buffer zones around institutions and whether that was a threat to free speech and how the, you know, non-life-sustaining businesses, what are those and virtual assembly? And does that mitigate the risk to first and 14th amendment protections? We did all this. We went through it. None of this touched on private gatherings and private homes, which seems to me facially unconstitutional as something you can actually prohibit. Um, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe extreme or uh, emergency powers extend even to that setting. Um, I'm not a lawyer. I'm, I don't have the precedent off the top of my head, so I can't say one way or the other. But even if it isn't, it's an abridgment of the social compact, the civic religion that we've made of the Constitution. Um, okay, so there, the, the First Amendment. Project. The First Amendment protects three liberties: right, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and freedom of religion. That's the First Amendment. Question is, does the word assembly mean having people in your house for Thanksgiving? Or does this, you know, what is the, now Now we're all, you know, we're all going to be constitutional lawyers and originalists or, you know, penumbras and emanations, liberals or something. Does assembly mean the gathering of anybody anywhere for any reason, which of course in context it would seem to mean, or does it mean assembly for the purpose of being a civic, you know, of, of performing some very broadly understood civic role. So Thanksgiving would not, of course, be that, or having a party in your house would not then constitute that thing. Um, but yeah, obviously you can't, I mean, you can't suspend the First Amendment. This was the question about whether or not you could limit uh, church meetings, but what they were was limited. They weren't. They weren't banned. They were limited to fifty people or whatever it was outside. Right, anyway, you okay. don't have to let a member of law enforcement into your home unless they have a warrant. So even if your neighbor informs on you, just send your relatives to the basement, tell them to be quiet, and say you're welcome to come in. Just show me your warrant. I mean, right? Am I wrong about that? That how are they actually going to enforce this? And and are they going to arrest? They can't even yeah. cite you for it if well, they can't prove it. Right. And what judge is going to issue a warrant? What's your PC? Right. 
Well, it's also you don't even know it's what the, you don't know what the penalty. Well, you also uh, crimes have to have penalties. You don't know what the penalty is. What's the crime? What's the statute? Well, these okay. are emergency powers, and there's a lot of latitude provided to emergency powers, especially in an in a obvious, a self-evident public health crisis that necessitates that sort of thing. But again, you're talking about a, a criminal search warrant. And it's just it's getting at a problem of messaging with a very heavy hand, because I think there is a message that needs to be reiterated and promoted. And actually, given that we now have just had an election and we have a new president, it's a it's a very opportune time for that message to be made where, you know, Biden's transition team could be extremely careful about how it's talking about this. It could say we have this resurgence coming and all they've so far, they've just sounded like a Game of Thrones preview, right? It's like winter is coming. I mean, the, the fear mongering is continuing, but I think people actually would be willing to alter their behavior. We've we've been doing this for a long time, but there's no, what I feel is missing, at least with the people I talk to who don't follow the politics of all, all of this very closely is getting a handle on just how serious is it, right? Because the, the case numbers are going up. They understand people are getting tested, but the death rate isn't like it was in the spring. The hospitalization rate in some places is spiking as to be expected. But I think there's a general sense of, but we have good news about a vaccine coming. I mean, how bad is it? I don't think people really have, and people who get it recover. I've heard a couple friends say, yeah, but even if you get it, you're, you're probably going to be fine. I mean, there's no perspective in the in the kind of global sense of where we are with this pandemic in the U.S. There's just fear. There's it, it could fear. be really bad. Um, it's it's the the case rate is exploding, and we haven't any, we even approached the point at which we're nearing the peak of that new explosion. So it's it's not going to be great. But well, this it doesn't you know, really have a gathering peak. thing. Yeah. Well, just briefly to introduce this issue, the the in home gathering thing is really not the the central public policy issue that we're going to be facing in the next couple of months. I don't think most states will appeal to something as draconian as that. That's really a province of the Northeast um, and our, you know, our peculiar authoritarian political culture. The, the um, real salient issue is going to be businesses. If we're going into another set of lockdowns and a lot of places are flirting with that and have reached the tripwire and are so reticent to even do what that tripwire compels you to do suggests that there's a lot of hesitancy to embrace these policies. But if we go into another lockdown um, without the kind of protections that we had in place over the course of this year, it's going to be apocalyptic. We're going to be waltzing into a great depression. We just narrowly avoided it. But by, by uh, so I think what, what we're talking about then is we're talking about say the, the problem with restaurants I mean, two different things are happening at, at the same moment, which is that, um, you know, in a lot of places that, that that are taking this seriously, there's been this kind of shift to this European-style makeshift outdoor dining system. So in New York City, for example, people are eating up parking spaces with these sheds that were put up, kind of slapped up to have tables out of them. But of course, you know, like right now, it's raining. It's uh, The temperature is dropping. So it's, you know, it's going to be in the 40s tonight and it will be raining and no one is going to want to sit outside in these sheds. So A, irrespective of the, uh, you know, the 10 o'clock rule where they no one can go indoors or whatever, um, the ways in which these places have struggled to figure out how to keep themselves with a very, very thin lifeline until things improve, 
are about to be dealt a body blow even without lockdown. And we've already seen, you know, I don't know what, no, no one even knows what the num- actual numbers are. 30% of these businesses closing or something like that already. And as Noah, you were saying before the podcast, like it is time for another payroll protection act. Uh, Nancy I mean, Pelosi, Nancy, time. I know Nancy Pelosi decided to try to help Joe Biden and her own caucus by refusing to pass anything that might help Trump, right? Which, guess what? She's about to come back in the next Congress with a seven or eight or nine seat majority and very possibly will be, I mean, she might be, you know, like tossed out on her, on her, on her tail. And maybe one of the reasons is that there was no payroll protection act in the last month because of her, you know, octogenarian hissy fit refusal to make a deal with Steve Mnuchin, who was just saying, they're saying, what do you want? What do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. Just tell me what you want, whatever you want. The crisis is here now. I mean, they're taught they're already restricting what businesses can do. We're past the point at which this is a, this is a problem. This is a crisis. We can't wait 10 weeks. Donald Trump has checked out. He's not governing. He's done. Right. Okay. So that's what I'm saying. Like paralysis reigns and we can't wait that long. So if Joe Biden, President-elect Joe Biden stands up tomorrow and says, we need a new payroll protection act. We've got to get this, we've got to get this support money because we're about to go into the dark winter that I'm talking about. So, you know, we can't wait until I get inaugurated. It's, it's got to happen now. What does that do? What does that do to Democrat? What does that do to Pelosi? He shouldn't say that publicly. What he should be doing is getting on the phone and talking to all these people behind the scenes, which and telling Pelosi, you know, look, Nancy, you, <laughs> this is not a victory. It was a victory for me, but not for thee. And get get on it, like start negotiating again. Why? Why shouldn't he say it publicly? I don't think it's his place to say it publicly right now. Actually, I think that's not. not he could say anything. I mean, he can say anything. It's true. But he, I actually, he went out, he went out in the uh, the on on Monday and he said, you know, uh, he attacked the supreme. He attacked the hearing on the supreme. You know, he's like, if the Supreme Court rules against Obamacare, we're going to act. I mean, anyone can say anything. He's got he's got freedom of speech. We'll I'm have just saying, task force do it then or something. I'm just I don't saying know. Trump is checked out. Trump only now cares about you know uh, raising a hundred million dollars through these complaints and saying that he won <laughs> and all of that and and you know basically the if 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 uh, if he believes that he lost, then the country can go to hell <laughs> anyway because it didn't return him. So that leaves McConnell standing there and Pelosi standing there uh, assuming that Trump would sign a bill and not just, you know, veto it. Um, It's the 12th of November. And if they are to be believed, as Noah said, an an apocalypse is coming. Are they not going to act? I, I mean, I, I think everybody was gobsmacked by in, in September that it wasn't happening then. And it's like the classic thing, which is it didn't happen then. And then what people say is, well, the world didn't fall apart. So I guess, you know, it didn't happen. And then everybody gets up the next morning and goes and goes on about their daily business. But that's not what we're talking about here. I mean, we're 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 at seven million cases or something in the United States. I mean, I, I don't know. 
supposedly, Noah, you mentioned a peak, like we haven't reached the peak. The theory of pandemic is that there is no peak because it just grows like it 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 fell back because there was some kind of mitigation of the spread partially maybe by warmer weather we don't even know and now it's here and there isn't going to be a peak it's not like it's going to hit and then start it, we're it's it's weird we're in a weird condition here um and we have old people all over the country in places where there haven't been, where there wasn't a first wave. And that's where the danger lies in terms of the death toll, right? I mean, you know, it's funny because you mentioned, you know, the, the 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 crazy numbers are in like South Dakota, North Dakota and places like that. Nobody's gathering there indoors. Like, I mean, they're not getting it unless they're getting it in, in, in nursing homes there. But I mean... These are very sparsely populated places. It's not from rallies. It's not from this. It's not from that. It's from, you know, it's like it's happening because it's happening. Abe, you remember your sort of existential. <clears throat> can you can you sort of refresh people on your existential theory of COVID, which is a very, and I mean literally existential, like French existentialism theory of COVID, I would say. Um, I think it's just that, <clears throat> excuse me, um, sort of every region has to face its spike at some point. Um, it can't be avoided. And when you get it, um, uh, you get it. And um, after you go through it, you won't be as bad off. Everyone is going to have a dance with the devil, right? basically. There is no avoiding the dance with the devil. Uh, spread went way down in the summer. Death toll, you know shrank to almost nothing relatively speaking and that isn't going to last because if you live in idaho or you live in south dakota and you were spared and then you were looking over to us and going oh ho ho you know you know basically like it was visited on the on the blue states i mean this is what i'll, I'll tell you what what angers me about about the the, the guidance to, and the restrictions on gatherings and, and sh- considering reshutting down and everything is that at this point, my feeling, and I'm sure the feeling of so many people, at least in New York and New Jersey, is like, you people don't know anything more than we do. And you've been wrong every step of the way, or, or even that you've been right for a little while. And then it turns out you were wrong. And then you don't address the fact that you were right. You were triumphal when things were had calmed down, even though there was reason to, to be um, sort of circumspect and, and wonder if things had calmed down through very little result of, of policy, but just as a sort of seasonal reality or whatever. You were, you were very triumphal, and now you're punitive. You know, it's like, enough with you. We all know that we all know the... Obviously, when I say I have Cuomo in my head when I'm saying yes, all this, right. but but but, I, but he's just a stand-in, you know. Um, well, it's, well no, Noah has Noah has uh, Governor Murphy right. in his head, and Christine has Muriel Bowser in her head. So it's not as though this right. really is localized to to Cuomo, though yeah. Cuomo is the most high profile. Yeah, and it's just you know, it's not like they know, and then people don't. We all know it's deadly. We all know about masks, and we at this point 
can all decide what we want to do about that. I mean, that it's a that's my sort of basic contention. Well, I think that goes to Christine's. That's literally, you know, that that the crisis of authority in the United States over the last twenty years that everybody talks about, and now, of course, we have the oh, Trump, it's so terrible. He is, you know, he's discrediting our 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 sacred election system. Say the people who say that Stacey Abrams won and was stolen, and say that all all votes in the last twenty years have been uh, un, unjust because of voter suppression, right? So suddenly their ox is being gored, and so they don't like it. This is sort of the same thing. It's like listen to the science, listen to the science, really. So why are we still why are we still scrubbing surfaces? You know, and every five minutes, if it turns out that the science doesn't says that COVID doesn't attach to surfaces. Well, there's also there's also another point, though, that I think is is uh, kind of a subtext of what Abe is saying, which is there is there there might be we might be reaching a point in the national mood, at least in some parts of the country that have gone through the the worst of it and are looking at another resurgence of allowing people to make some risk assessments of their own, right? So I feel like, which isn't to say, you know, everything should be over, we should pretend it's not real, because obviously people who are high risk should stay, you know, uh, on lockdown in their homes, they should be super cautious, we should be, uh, we should accommodate them in terms of, you know, if they're an employee or a teacher or whatever it is. Um, I'm not saying that, but that's, a we, we know a lot more now about the people who are the highest risk. So for others who are low risk, can they not take upon themselves the choice about how to behave and go through uh, their daily lives without so many restrictions? Because I feel like if you say you got to shut down every single restaurant, you're also shutting down entrepreneurs' ability to try to to work a system around this. And there have been some really creative things that people have tried to do. I mean, here in D.C., a bunch of restaurant folks made a ghost kitchen. So it's all takeout, all delivery. And they keep, it's like a kitchen where they can just do that kind of service because they couldn't keep people, people, they knew people weren't going to come in and sit down and eat. So there are lots of creative ways to do these things. If you just shut everything down again, all of those outlets are gone. The businesses are decimated. I know many small business owners in this city who will never, they'll close and they will never reopen and they, because they are barely hanging on. That's not how this is, this conversation is going on the left. They're not talking about it this way. They're talking about um, how uh, venal it is for American cities to keep restaurants open so that people can dine indoors, as frivolous as that is, and how non-essential office workers are still not being asked to stay home. And schools are open, and schools shouldn't be open. In New York City, there is talk again of closing down the school system, even before Thanksgiving. New New York Times has this report that you should expect that to happen this month. Or is it relatively soon within the next couple? We of weeks? never opened, so we've just <laughs> yeah. New well, the New York City school system is barely open anyway. To the consternation of the teachers' unions and and several you know left leaning constituencies who regard this as some sort of a assault on decency when you, adults should should be the ones to suffer here, which suggests that they don't think that you know adults are suffering when children go home they want they want you to have fewer outlets for your uh commercial activities um but that would allow them to close the schools they're desperate to close the school down so they really want to close the schools down again despite all evidence that it's that it's some sort of a, a really problematic transmission vector so okay so you're saying we're having this conversation the left is having the other conversation. but of course the left loves government spending so there's no literally no 
There's no, there's no anti. They don't just love government spending. No, but they, they love government. No, but and whatever government right. does is valuable, even no. if up to and including right. the curtailment of individual civil liberties. Right, civil but, liberties. Right, but let's get back to the PPA point, which is like they're not going to object to the PPA. The only person who objected to the PPA extension, I mean, McConnell didn't want the spending, but was Pelosi who kept saying that, you know, I, I need... Democrats blocked a Republican addition. Democrats yeah, were... I know, but they, but they were... Yeah, but on the grounds that it wasn't generous enough. Right. So that's my point, which is that which is that they're, we're, we're on the horns of a dilemma. There's one problem with the people need to take their own precautions, like that, that is vitiated by a pandemic. That's why these things are so complicated, which is you can take your own precautions for yourself, but if you get it and start shedding the virus, your precautions are your 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 personal choices are no longer limited to you. You you can get other people sick, and therefore, right. it's a it's a the the personal responsibility aspect of this places a new kind a new set of burdens on people. If we are really to be personally responsible, then you know, you, you are responsible. It's not dependent at that point. An ethic of personal responsibility says, if you get it and you haven't taken appropriate precautions, as it turns out, and you get somebody else sick, then it's not on the pandemic. It's on you. You had every reason, you got every warning, you had every idea about how to live cautiously. You decided to be a little incautious based on, you know, what you could do in a most draconian setting and somebody else gets it and somebody else dies and you killed them. You killed them. Like that's a new, that's, that's where it gets weird because an ethic of personal responsibility would actually incline people, the very people who are complaint, who have been complaining for six or seven months about this to wear a mask, right? but they don't. Well, you know, and, I, yeah, and all so, those people are right. like, don't tread on me. Right. Well, the, and I'm saying this yeah, in the context of now knowing yeah. what we know. Yeah, we need we need testing. People should be getting tested regularly, especially if they're the ones who feel themselves to be at low risk. You still should be tested regularly. You should wear a mask. Every, I mean, all of that. So that that was I should have said yeah. like that's no, no, the baseline I, for the risk yeah. taking we can now do. But right. there is there's evidence, particularly with schools. If you look, look, France shut down, but its schools were still open. I mean, yeah. You can shut down a lot to contain things while still making, you know, targeted choices that will right. help your population. I mean, and the other thing just that, that needs mentioning because it's been ignored here is that um, the shutdowns, uh, as we know from the first time, um, produced all sorts of other um, negative health consequences, mental health consequences, and I would argue broke the country in all sorts of fundamental ways, not just economically, and gave way to the wave of riots and crime and and every and uh, and destabilization. And a, a second round of that would really be um, a body blow. Absolutely, uh, of course. When you read what the sort of some of the people on the on the Biden coronavirus task force and stuff are saying, um, there is a kind of airy quality to it. It's like you know, it's like the the assume the economist, you know, the you know, you're in a hole with a bunch of economists, and you need to get out of the hole, and the economist says, assume a ladder. It's like 
it's fine. If the, if the entire country just shut down for six weeks, we could really break this thing. Entire country shut down for six out of the 52 weeks of the year in an economy, in a $20 trillion economy. We just shut the country down. It's like you're going to be on a public health task force helping to design the policies of the United States government, and you think that the Trump administration's behavior was irresponsible and foolish and stupid? And well, it, but it's it's spoken like an expert, a member of an expert class that has a healthy uh, financial cushion, and the uh, most of the country doesn't have that that luxury. That is a luxury. It's the luxury. It's why it's why the image of the late pandemic is is Nancy freaking Pelosi eating that sixty dollar ice cream bar or whatever it was. Like yeah. the reason that stuck is that that's what it symbolizes: is that the people who have the power to make the policies also are protected from the results of what they're deciding. And that really gets people annoyed. I mean, as you can tell, I'm very annoyed. Yeah. But that, but that's a position of privilege. And they're not acknowledging that at the same time that they're shutting down the small business owner who has no safety net. And it's not just it's it's not just the economic thing either. I mean, there seems to be some sort of sociological law whereby if you um, constrict the movement of a large uh, population for uh, an extended period of time, you will encounter rioting and revolt. I mean, it's it's not. Right. It hasn't just been in the United States. I know, I know the Americans are more violent. We're more of this. We're more rambunctious. We don't. We break laws more. We do. A, there. It's it's happened in all sorts of countries that you would. It's happened in Europe where where people come out in mass to protest lockdowns. It, it's it's something you cannot do to the human animal to an extended period of time without expecting to see that kind of breakdown. There's also, and I'm writing about this in a different context today, but there's also a sort of a, a a law of nature to American politics where there's a centrifugal force in which if one party is for something, the other party is against it. So if you're going to have a Democratic Party that is profoundly pro-lockdown, across the board, social gatherings shut down, restaurants shut down, everything shut down, the other party is going to be against that. And the other party is doing pretty well. They lost the presidency, but they're ascendant in a lot of states and they're doing pretty well on the congressional level. And if you're going to have this kind of uh, authoritarian dogma where you cannot abide any kind of uh, individual personal responsibility as a mitigating effect on the spread of this virus, then you're going to have that that reciprocal re- effect on, on the right and opposite and opposing force that's going to make that policy less effective because you're going to see people being reckless about it, flaunting these guidelines, making an identity, a personal identity out of flaunting these guidelines. You know, you see, you think you've seen an anti-masking now. Yeah. Just wait. We Just know. wait until the, this becomes a, a source of your individual identity. But I mean, I think this is a very important point because, as as you guys have said, this idea that you, these experts, from you know February or you know from the very beginning of the news that it was coming until you know they didn't know what the hell they were doing. You should wear a mask. You shouldn't wear a mask. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. You should shut down. You shouldn't shut down. Now you have to shut down. The minute that they make, and however they say you should do things, they say it in this very authoritative manner that suggests that disagreement, only an idiot or some kind of a an ideological psycho would disagree with them. And then they changed 
directions and the tone is taken about the new direction that they take. So you do have this like to hell with you people. And it is a huge problem because when Biden gave his victory speech on Saturday night, there were the, there were these two flat screens, but you know, giant screens behind him or behind her before they came out and uh, they were flashing slogans. And it said, we believe in unity we believe in justice. We believe in science, right? So the science has failed us this year. If you want to take public health as science, it has not helped us. We're about, it looks like we're about to be saved by actual practical science, right? That's vaccine research, RNA, you know, this kind of genius uh, understanding other things, new treatments, all of that. That is practical, in-laboratory, scientists doing scientific things with science. Public health has failed, and that is not science. A lot of it is this weird amalgam of sociology and data that is, as it turns out, as effective <laughs> as polling data can be. And then, of course, we had those things where, you know, we're talking about Muriel Bowser and stuff, but of course, we had the public health leader of Los Angeles County saying that it was perfectly okay to go and demonstrate because that was that, you know, social justice is just as important. There was as an official health. letter signed by all kinds of leaders of public health saying that that social that that racism was more detrimental to people's health than this <clears throat> pandemic and they should get out there and protest. Right. I mean, that's that's, you know, right. The public. So, so they've failed us. And yeah, as you say, now they're about to stand up and say. Do now we're going to give you new marching orders. Can I can I say one perhaps slight ray of hope? Um, Although politically, I probably disagree with everything he does. But Biden's choice of Ron Klain for chief of staff is actually perhaps a good sign about this exact question, because he doesn't pretend to be an epidemiologist or a public health expert. He is a he is a political operator. He headed uh, the Ebola task force under Obama, did a pretty good job with that. So he's someone who actually will have to help the Biden administration make the political choices that for now we've all cloaked in, oh, if, if you know, it's Dr. Fauci, we must listen to Dr. Fauci. And I think Noah especially has been uh, correctly and consistently critical of the idea that this guy should be making political decisions because that's trade-offs, right? So I think that that I take as a hopeful sign, actually, that Klain is the one who's going to be running that, that uh, White House because he'll hopefully know the kinds of people to choose in terms of particularly if we do get a vaccine, how to, how to get it out to people. Look, all Fauci has done, if you're going to take Fauci as a model, all Fauci has done is say, ultimately, the reason that people have ended up having faith in him, uh, you know, except maybe for the the people who want to believe, as we would all like to believe, that herd immunity, you know, is the best way to go because it's the least costly, you know, in terms of uh, personal inconvenience and all of that. Uh, it does not seem to work. Nonetheless, what Fauci was, was this is serious. This is really serious. Take this seriously. This is really serious. Be worried. Be frightened. Be cautious. Do what you can do cautiously. 
Yes, I said, I mean, didn't put it this way, but it's like, yes, I said, you shouldn't wear a mask. You don't want to know why I said that, though. Of course, he's never really said it this way, because we were so terrified that the healthcare system would collapse when all the cases washed over us. So you got to wear a mask. You got to take it seriously. Be serious about it. And then we had these bizarre messages from Trump, which was, try not to take it so seriously. Get on with your lives. Go on, you know. And it will be fine at Easter. My hope is that by Easter, everybody can get together at Easter. Um, and, you know, again, it's like, this is where the thing Noah was talking about, about, you know, uh, each party, you know, just being the negative refraction of the other, that, yeah, if Trump had said, take this really seriously, we all know if he had done this in February, that everyone would have said he's trying to distract from impeachment and he's an authoritarian fascist and this is how he is going to impose his fascist regime. Right, he's going to like put everybody under lockdown. I mean, that's not a hypothetical. When the president pursued um, restrictions on travel from China, Democrats reacted to that as though it was right. an expression of naked xenophobia, and you have to do the precise opposite. Right. I mean, I've mentioned this before, but you know, in Israel, just to take a, and you know, an interesting test case, uh, Bibi Netanyahu is Fauci. Bibi Netanyahu is Cuomo. Bibi wants to shut the country down. Like he has wanted to, he's very nervous about it. He has been the hawk. He has been the virus hawk. Bibi, right? So who's the virus dove? The left, the Israeli left. He's trying to kill us. He's an authoritarian. He's trying to, you know, prevent the, you know, his trial from starting in January. He's trying to get everybody used to the fact that he's going to roll the tanks. I mean, everything that that I just said people would have said about Trump had he been a hard ass. People are literally saying about Bibi now, and people are saying it in Britain about Boris Johnson, who was accused of being too loose. And Johnson is Johnson is like Cuomo squared. Like, you're not allowed in, in England, which of course doesn't have the constitution, you're not allowed to like gather more than two people or something like that. And nothing is open and everything is going to be shut down for a month. You know, like no business is going to be open like that. So and and then, of course, it's the Labor Party who is saying he's trying to kill people. So we're, you know, it this all is depends. a very difficult moment in which to not have, a, you know, trust in leaders. I'm sorry. Ab, I no, it's just it's so funny because it all depends on where you first zig. And then that that determines where the, the enemy will zag. And that and that sets the parameters for your country. Look, Trump made a bet. Trump made a bet, and he made the wrong bet. That's all I can say. Trump made a bet that what he was supposed to do was be upbeat, as opposed to saying, you know, let's take this really seriously. Now, if he'd paid the slightest attention to history, he would have known this. Not just history. If he'd paid the slightest attention to. Rudy Giuliani's behavior after 9-11 or, Trump, or, or Bush's behavior after 9-11, he would have known that uh, in the midst of a crisis, the thing people want from, from leaders is sobriety and a little, and actually some reflection of darkness. And he made the wrong bet. I mean, he could have gone either way and he went the other way. And so here, here he is now claiming that the election was stolen from him when we can see right in front of us that he lost the election largely because of the virus. Why else would the Republican Party be running ahead of him everywhere? Because he was the face of this response to the virus. They weren't. 
Susan Collins wasn't, right? I mean, you know, these House members that didn't get defeated and the House members that that beat Democrats and all this didn't. And so it was an interesting kind of political moment. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see. And, the, and, then, and then it was Biden who was the sober, serious, you know, like pessimist about how things were going to be in the short term. Um, so I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. Anybody, anybody now have a prediction about, uh, when or whether, uh, Trump will never concede, but he'll say, he'll say something like, obviously this is going this other way and I'm not, you know, they, they stole the election from me, but you know, we're going to move on and I'm going to start my online tv network to destroy fox sooner rather than later i think i mean he's got if he's actually he if he needs to get started on his exit strategy if his if his next venture is a you know narcissistic television network so yeah i don't think it's he can't drag this out much longer anyway because the legal cases are are you know as we've seen from the people who've analyzed them pretty thin gruel i mean he could you know it's also we don't know how the fundraising is going like what 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 if what I mean, if the money is just flowing in like 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 water. I don't know. Trump, I'm Trump. Fox did not have a bad 2020. It had a really good 2020. And the story of the effort to create a competitor to Fox from its right on cable news is a decade old story. And the way is littered with bodies. This is what Blaze tried to do. It's what Newsmax tries to do. It's what OANN tries to do. Half a dozen others have tried and failed. The conservative media space is actually really crowded and Donald Trump's personality alone will suffice to generate a fair bit of interest in this project, at least early, but it's, it's going to be a slog being a media uh, company, much less a media executive is a difficult venture. And one that if Donald Trump thinks he's just going to watch it waltz into this space and compete with successfully against news corp, he's, he's going to find, it's a, it's a difficult haul. If he's smart, he'd just take Hannity's job. I mean, that would be much more fun because that's what he wants to do. He's just pontificate for two hours a night to the American people. Well, well that's he'll have that spot what, on his network. Yeah. Also, first of all, I mean, if what, what we're reading is real, and it may not be, the idea would be that he would start a, a port, an online portal, not something that would be on your on your on your cable channel. And I think it's pretty fair to assume under those circumstances that if, you know, I don't know, Glenn Greenwald can get 100,000 people to subscribe to his newsletter on Substack in a day, that Donald Trump could get 10 million people to subscribe to his $10 a month online service. I'm quite sure that there will be a burst of interest early. It's maintaining the audience. That is the trial for every institution that wants to have eyeballs consecutively and consistently over the course of years. Oh, Noah, 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 as long as long as it debuts fine, it's the greatest success. It will be. Ne- there'll never have ever been anything like it. it no one's. You ever better get those automatic like renewals, it. though. <laughs> yeah. Well. Anyway, I don't know if it's going to be sooner rather than later. I mean, it may. The whole question is whether there is a kind of. Um, just the air air just emptying from the balloon and that it's sort of either it doesn't matter again all of his efforts are going to be ballasted and kept propped up by by liberals who who 
you know, if you look at Twitter, as we said yesterday, I mean, you can see the addiction to Trump outrage is minute by minute by minute. Um, they, they're more addicted to it than the Trumpkins are addicted to hearing that there was a guy n- near a mailbox in Idaho who, you know, spit on a ballot and therefore the entire election should be overturned nationally. You know, that they seem to love these stories. And then the, uh, you know, and then the, but it's, they may love those, but I mean, the, the, the coup at the Pentagon by, by appointing three acting officials who have no control over the military, uh, I would say is, um, you know, we've had three days of this already and, that was really, you know, just basically to, I think, up their SES level so that they can get a big bonus at the end of the administration and get paid off for the loyalty. Anyway, that's my view of what's going on there. Sorry to have uh, crushed your spirits as we did when we started the daily podcast. What can I do? It's what we do. So for Abe, Christine, and Noah, we'll see you tomorrow. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the camel burning.